Welcome to Control the Controllables. My name is John McGahan from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland, and I'm here with my co-host, Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we have created a podcast, bringing some of the top tennis athletes and tennis coaches from across the globe together. We hope you enjoy our next episode. Welcome to episode 59 of Control the Controllables. Today we have Sam Jalo. Sam comes from Sierra Leone and had an incredibly difficult upbringing that tennis played such a pivotal key role in him getting through all of the lessons that he's learned. He's put to amazing effect and is now an inspirational and motivational speaker as well as a tennis coach to many globally. We talk about the difficulties of tennis quite often in, on this podcast in terms of talks at academies, clubs. It's quite a frequent conversation. But one of the things we don't talk about enough is, is the amazing impact that tennis has on people's lives. You know, it, it really is. Success really and truly is more than winning tennis matches. It's the skills, it's the networks, it's the opportunity and Sam brings all of that through massively throughout the chat. And I know that you're going to love it. Uh, a big thank you to you all again for listening. Please keep spreading the word, sharing the podcast out there, liking, reviewing. It really does help get, get the podcast out far and wide. But now I'm going to pass you over to the incredible story of Sam Jalo. So, Sam Jalo, welcome to Control the Controllables. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Dan, and thank you, everybody. And I'm uh, very happy and excited to be here today. No, it's, it's, it's amazing to have you on, Sam. You know, and just for those listening, strap yourselves in. I promise you, at the end of this 45 minutes or an hour, you're going to be left feeling very inspired. You're going to be, you're going to be feeling that you haven't actually dealt with as much as you might think that you have in your life at the end of it. So Sam comes from Sierra Leone. He's got an amazing story to tell. You know, he's played tennis to a very high level, played on the ITF circuits and was the flag bearer at the All-African Games and has also got a book out on how tennis saved his life. We're going to yeah. get into lots of those details, Sam, but I guess during this kind of crazy global period... Let, yeah. us, let, let us know how the last few months have been for you, where you are, all of those things. Well, uh, the last few months has been very challenging, I guess, for everybody on the planet because um, this is COVID has been one of the most remarkable things to happen, I think, in uh, 2020. And um, I was in Canada, finishing Chile and Canada in um, November, and then invited to come to do the TED Talk in, uh, in England. And then, so Wiser was there, and uh, Wiser was uh, living in Canada. I did said to the player that I traveled with, an American kid, that, okay, I'm going to take three months off to spend with my family. So that will be January, February, March, and then in April, and then we can start again back on the tour. So, and Kim did the TED Talk and everything, did some filming for BBC, and then um, the lockdown happened exactly in March. So since then, I've been at home. But for me, the, the good thing is the, uh, the COVID itself, the lockdown was not a challenge. In fact, it's actually, it was more beneficial to me and my family because my kids are very happy I'm home. They don't want daddy to go away. So that was a good thing. But uh, I've managed to write 
three other books during the lockdown. Oh, so wow. that, that for me is, is the benefits of the, uh, the lockdown. Yeah, and I think I think we've seen it with many people, you know, and I think it it says says a lot about people on how they respond in in, in moments like this and being able to turn it into opportunity. So just to pick up there, the the player. So who, which player have you been working with, and how how many weeks are you spending on the road normally? Well, uh, we spend nine months traveling. Um, I work with Elijah Poriski. Uh, he's an American player, but I got a variety of other players. And um, um, I got a girl also in Taiwan, but I do a lot of mental coaching with her. Uh, she is Kyle. But uh, Elijah is the main kid that I travel with. And I also have my number one, obviously, player. She is uh, 13 years old, Sophia Edmondson. Uh, she was born in Mallorca. So I travel with her. We've been to the Little Mo International in the U.S. Uh, we've been to the, um, the Brobnik Dub Bowl, or Dub Bowl. And uh, we've been to England. And um, so she plays a lot. Uh, so she's one of the best in Spain in the age group. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I work with her. And then also I got another player from Switzerland. Uh, Darius is uh, 15 years old and he's really good. So he's promising. And I got some few British players as well. So, but Elijah is the, and Sophia are the two I spend the most time with, um, you know, traveling all over the place. And how do you balance looking after all those different players when you're traveling so much? Well, most of them really, I, I do a lot of, uh, for me, mental training because yeah. obviously, as we know, tennis is divided into four categories. Uh, you got the, um, uh, the physical side, the mental, uh, technical and tactical side, which under the physical, you got nutrition and all these things. But even to the top level, like we saw what happened the other day with Novak and what happened two years ago with Serena at the US Open, seems like always happening in the US Open, mm. people are losing their minds. So, the mental aspect is the biggest uh, for me, which is the most difficult for players to develop. So I spend more time with all these players, uh, working more on the mental side, rather than just to, because the tennis side, there's a lot of coaches around that can work on their tennis and other things, and I can work on their mental. So I spend most of my time with Elijah and Sophia, but all the other players around me, we can do Zoom, you know, calling, we can go on WhatsApp and other things, and so we can share what they do and I can check up on them. You know, even when we travel to different places yeah. at different time, it's you got we got twenty four hours a day no matter where you are. So yeah. we do manage and you know we can yeah. walk through the clock. So it's it's not that difficult to manage. And did you know what Zoom was before the lockdown? Absolutely not. <laughs> I can remember that my first Zoom was uh, with two hundred nearly two hundred Arab coaches. Right. I've never heard of this before. And so they got in touch with me. I'm helping about 13 Arabian countries in terms of coaching development and all this kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, the guy said, oh, Sam, by the way, and we're gonna, uh, the meeting is going to be on the Zoom. So I said, uh, Zoom, what is Zoom? And he was looking at me because I was on video chat with him on WhatsApp. And he was looking at me like, you live in England, you don't know what Zoom is. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. I go, well, no, I'm very, so anyway, and uh, he sent me the link. He said, well, download the app and all this thing. So I did it and it was really fascinating because, you know, to see on the screen when I was doing the, the, the thing, uh, the meeting or the lecture with them, I saw all these guys' names start signing in and things. I said, wow, this is amazing. So ever since, you know, I've done way too many Zoom now. Yeah, and, and I think some, some cleverer person than me 
recognised that five months ago, bought some shares in that company and has done very well the last five well, months. Don, I tell you what, he, he must be clapping his hand. Oh, my, my goodness. goodness. It's, yeah. a, it's, it's, a be, it's better to have an a online video calling company than a tennis academy during the last five months. That's for, <laughs> that's for sure. And you, you, mentioned, you mentioned Novak Djokovic. I can't, I can't have a tennis coach on without getting the opinion. Two things, I guess. Let's start with the Novak Djokovic default. What would you take on that? Um, I think, I know people will, will pass me on this to say, uh, well, Nobody is above the law, but I think I look at the video for more than 50 times. I look at all the angle video which they posted. For me, I'm looking at the body language of Nova. Yes, he was upset when he lost his serve, but when he hit the ball, he wasn't that upset. It was just one of those frustration things just because he wasn't looking and just threw it. And I think he assumed he was hitting the ball towards where the ball kid was. And then unfortunately, he went directly to the... Um, you know, to the line judge, which I think uh, in another way, maybe I think they should have just given him a whole, let him lose the sets. You know, I could have understand that. But also, I'm not saying kid or anyone should go around hitting tennis ball. But, you know, Novak won the, 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 the Western whatever tournament prior to the, to the US Open. There's a video online, if you look at um, Dimitrov, hit the same thing, hit the cameraman with the ball and then the referee came and everybody came, but the cameraman even turned into a joke. He said, yes, he did hit me with the, uh, my camera with the ball, but it was totally accidental because he didn't want them to um, disqualify Dimitrov. So I think again, um, the line judges, they, they understand this. If, if Novak would have really taken the ball, like what Shapalov, uh, uh, yeah. Shapalov did the last time, with really aggression, then I would have understood. Yeah. But I think the reaction we got on the internet and everyone else is we say, okay, kids are looking at this. They shouldn't be doing it. I think, you know, it is sad, but I think they should have punished him with something and maybe not default him. Maybe that's the way I think. Because yeah. I think genuinely Novak is a, is a nice person. And, and one more thing is what I think people don't understand in competitive um, sports. People think when you're one of the best, you should be a, like a priest or a pastor who... Yeah. You're very holy, you don't do things. But yeah, yeah. people don't understand that the higher level that you play, the more these people are always sometimes, you know, uh, very frustrated with themselves, with whatever is going on around. So it's a lot to manage as a, as a top player. So I'm not saying Novak was right, and I'm not saying the, the USD was wrong to throw him out, but I, I would have probably preferred to give him, uh, let him lose the first set and then give him a warning or something like that. And so it would have, because genuinely you can see from his reaction that he was the first person to run to the lady and go, oh, I, I totally didn't mean to do this. And it wasn't like I was too, that much even frustrated. So that's my opinion, but everybody yeah. else have their own opinion. Yeah, well, I have, I agree with you 50%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, and I'm actually, I'm not Novak Djokovic's biggest fan. Um, yeah. I, I have a lot of respect for him, but yeah. I think I think at times he lacks a little bit of humility, and and yeah, actually, that's, actually that's and and when I saw it, my initial reaction was I feel sorry for him, yeah. and you know because and, it, and the lady as well, yeah, yeah, of course, and and because no, absolutely, you know, and 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 it was 
it wasn't it wasn't a really aggressive thing. But the thing that I I do think I guess, and we don't need to waste too much airtime on this, is I guess a rule is a rule, you know, yeah. and and yeah. and you know they, they can't start creating rules on the spot. And yeah. you know it's it's slightly unfortunate, but I also then do think he should have come out, held his hands up, and spoke yeah. straight straight away about the lines judge. Yeah. You know, showed that human side a little bit, which I yeah. think he, he doesn't always do himself the most favors. But yeah. anyway, yeah. that's let's yeah. not let's not harp on about it too much. In terms of the second thing, before we get into your amazing story, what yeah. what should take on the PTPA? this new players' union that Novak Djokovic is also trying to bring together? Well, I'd, I, um, I had a look at it. Uh, again, I follow because I've been so busy minding uh, my own, managing so many other things. Yeah. Um, and then I look at it and I listen to him and what's been going on. But I think also the media and everything make things maybe 10 times worse than, yeah. you know, me and you can read into things. Because Novak said he called out to Federer and Rafa and everybody else and he thought these guys, they understood what he was doing, what he wanted to do. And again, like you said, I would just take it like you just said, take things 50-50. I mean, the ATP obviously is a strong, it's a big governing body and it's been there for a long while. But I am looking at giving from Novak background. And when I was playing in the future, for example, I remember we were in Senegal and three of us went into book one room. And 10 of us end up sleeping in the room and our tennis bag was our pillow, you know, because there's no money in the future. You know, yeah. you spend more money, you know, to try and go win one or two points. And, but before you win the point, you have to even get to quarterfinal, you have to beat, you know, so the, the pressure of this, so I could understand some of the things that he is saying about the, the money is more spent into the top players and not so much and there is lack of some cares and other things in between the, the top level. So, again, um, is it the right way for him to go for it? Maybe for him, that's the right time. Is it a bad thing for somebody else to do something to help others? Absolutely not. But um, whether it is wrong or right, it's hard to say until the whole thing has been formed and done properly, yeah. then we can see where it stands. But again, against the ATP, I don't know what's going to happen. Transparency. That's what we yeah. need. If, yeah. if I truly believed that that's what was happening, that yeah. one, one, they were looking to bring equality between men's and women's and bringing the, yeah. those two twos together, two, yeah. that they were looking to spread the money around and have more people have security through our sport, which yeah. can, can then also filter into academies, clubs, some of the things we then will speak about today into com yeah. different countries that need help yeah. in federation. Then... It gets my signature. I'll fly to New York tomorrow and give my signature. Yeah. You know, yeah. not not that they need my signature, but when it's something that where the transparency isn't there, it yeah. it, 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 it feels too political for me. It feels too yeah. much like who you're voting for to be president of the United States. You don't know yeah. what to, you know. You, how do you know what to believe? So yeah. that's yeah. that would be the big call out that I would have. And lastly, yeah. on the U.S. Open, this will go out before the final i think yeah. who's who are your winners men and women's winners of the us open 2020 i will go with um serena yeah that would be because good. uh with her experience and uh, probably the way she is hungry for um 
for 24. Maybe that's a pressure thing or not. Mm -hmm. But I watched her against Sakari yesterday. And um, unless, uh, like, they always, like we've always said, Serena can only beat Serena. You know, if uh, for the past three or four Grand Slams, she's been in the finals. And then she goes to the final and then completely a different player altogether, which in the past, it used to be the opposite. She fights her way to the final, and then in the final, she become, you know, this uh, tiger or lion, whatever we want to call her. Yeah. And then, uh, for now, looking at the men's, because Novak is not there, I'm actually heading to Dominic Tim. Yeah. Because the way he deal with, um, uh, what's his name from Felix. Canada yesterday? Felix, yeah. I was really, the, after the first set, 6-1, 6-1 was, wow. I'm thinking, yeah, and, and he's playing well, and he has a lot of experience in finals, and he had so much disappointment losing to Novak in the final, and then also to Rafa at the Roland Garros. So if anyone, I think, would have the experience to win right now, I think it would be Dominic Tim. It's a good call. I'm going to go Medvedev, yeah. and, I, and I think they go, they're on course to playing each other in the semi-finals. So yeah. when, when this podcast is out, we'll, we'll know. We'll have a little text message and see. Uh, but okay. no, it's, it's certainly very exciting. And I'm with you. I hope, I hope Serena can get over the line. I think she's, she's been so amazing for the game for so long. But she, yeah. she's, she has built up number 24. And, it, yeah. and again, to those listening, don't think that you're special because you put pressure on yourself when you play. Yeah. You know, know. arguably know. the greatest player of all time is yeah. putting exactly the same pressure on herself. Um, yeah. and, and I think that's really important. So, Sam, yeah. we've, we've, yeah. we've, we've talked about some nice subjects. Yeah. But let's get, let's get into your story. It, it really is. It's a fascinating story. I spent probably two hours last night watching videos, listening to you, reading and yeah. and I, and I and I couldn't put put it down. You know, you it, it's a it's a story we don't hear a lot of, and it is a very inspirational story. Yeah. I'm going to leave the floor to you to to tell your story. I'll jump in at any different moments. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, listeners, um, again, I'm Samuel Porejalo, uh, born in Sierra Leone. I'm 38 years old now, so I'm really what you call in tennis an old man. <laughs> so, You're two years younger uh, than me. There <laughs> <laughs> we go. Okay. So I won't go play. And um, so, yeah, so growing up in Sierra Leone was really tough uh, back then. But, um, you know, I was born in a place called Tembe Town, which Tembe Town is one of the worst slum in the capital city is in Freetown. And the, the, the name of the area where I was actually born, the, the big area is called Wilberforce. Now, the reason why Wilberforce, because there was a British uh, politician in the 1800s uh, named by the name of William Wilberforce, who was one of the pioneers for the freedom of slaves. So, um, so when he finally uh, was managed to uh, get the, the Westminster to sign the document to say, okay, black people should have freedom, and then I think he passed away uh, before I think the law, the law was, uh, came out. So when the first freed slave were sent from the Americas and West Indies, they sent them to Sierra Leone. So they named the capital city Freetown, and then the area where the first freed slave stay was named Wilberforce. So I was born in Wilberforce in a little area called Tembe Town. So uh, that was in honor of William Wilberforce. And Tembe Town, like I said, is one of the worst slums in the capital city. 
my parents, we live in a corrugated old rust zinc house. And um, this house is uh, during the raining season when we have monsoon rain. Um, we have water leaking from the roof, which my dad and mom will wake up, you know, at night and they put a lot of tins and buckets and stuff at the top so that um, we can sleep a little bit comfortable. So my mom and dad uh, never had any education, never went to school, and uh, they, they work eight days a week. Now, when I always say eight days, because if you work from Monday to Monday without day off, basically you're working eight days a week. Okay. And um, so, and their salary was barely 10 pounds together a month. And uh, as poor as my parents were, they decided to have so many children, and they had 11 of us. Oh, wow. And so I was child number eight, and three of my brothers that were born before me, uh, they died. Because at the same time, Sierra Leone had one of the worst mortality rates. And I was actually the first child in my, first boy in my family to celebrate my second birthday. And uh, like I said, three of my brothers died before me because there's no medical facility. And my mom gave birth to all of the children at home. Okay. And so, yeah, so it was really tough. And uh, worst of all is, my parents decided to give me also a girl's name. So my girl name is uh, Pore. Pore is the name of a girl. Uh, that was just like a belief system to say, to convince, they said there's an evil spirit that kill all the male child in the family. So when I was born, they decided, okay, we give him a girl's name to convince the devil or evil spirit that, you know, Sam was a girl. So my original name is Pore Jalo. And then before my sixth birthday, I had a car accident. So I was trying to cross a road to go see my mom and a car hit me, broke both my legs, cut my lip. I still have the scars here in two. And um, so the driver took me to the nearest uh, hospital, which was there's a military hospital. And my mom was at the market selling some vegetables. And the news met my mom actually to say, your son has been hit and he's dead. So they take his body to the hospital. So my mom had to run barefoot all the way to the hospital. But again, there's a thing they always say, out of one bad uh, situation, something good come out of it. And what actually came out of this, it was the first time in our life, me and my mom actually slept on a proper bed. Right, okay. So for the first time, my dad was an electrician by the but we never had uh, light electricity in our house because we live in corrugated house and you don't want to be wiring wire into metal things <laughs> that will not go down well yeah. so anyway so so for the first time we actually slept in a proper bed on the light so i spent few months in the hospital and then um so me thinking you know maybe the devil must have found out that i wasn't a, a girl <laughs> so he was there to take a revenge on my on my parents so you know so that was tough and you know i never had shoes we had one meal a day and uh, we all slept on the floor and never, never had a bed. So my parents find, find uh, cardboards, you know, like when people open fridge and TV, like rich people, so they throw the cardboards in the bin. Yeah. So my parents, my mom and my dad, whenever they go somewhere, they go to the dustbin and search for goods, you know, so they bring the cardboards home and that's what we will be sleeping on. So, and then at the age of six, my dad had an offer. Uh, the, the guy who owns the, the, the corrugated house where we live, the landlord, uh, decided, okay, they want to adopt a child. So he said to my dad, you know, if I can adopt your son, I will make your rent three times cheaper. And, you know, my dad, without even thinking about it, he 
they just decided, oh yeah, you can have him now. <laughs> so, so you know, so at the age of six years old, I was adopted. I was upset, obviously, because as poor as my family were, I didn't want to leave my mom and dad. I didn't want to leave my siblings. And I can remember vividly when this old man who was 65 years old, so my new uncle came to pick me up and my mom had two, three of my clothes in a, a carrier bag, just a little plastic carrier bag. And I have no shoes because I've never had shoes. So anyway, we walk all the way to my new home and um, uncle who adopted me and his mom was, uh, it's a six years old. So she came out, opened the door, and um, she said to me with this old lady voice and said, what's your name? So I said, Pore. And then she looked at me and said, okay, from today, your name is Samuel. She said, I'm giving you that name Samuel because Samuel is a good person in the Bible. Samuel was never tell lies, never do this, never do that. So she gave me all this whole story about the Bible. And by the way, my, my uh, biological parents are from a very Islamic background. So, okay. so this is how I become a Christian by then. And um, so my name was changed to Samuel Jalo. So, and then, um, you know, Samuel Pore Jalos, but Samuel is the name that, you know, I grew up with the most mm -hmm. and, um, when I was adopted. But being adopted as well was probably the toughest challenge I mean, I've had challenges on a tennis court, mm. but trust me, what I had with my adopted family was not even close. Yeah. And um, grandma was very strict. Even though she was 86 years old, uh, she was like a super nana. She was physically strong and she could walk and she talks. She doesn't even look like an 86 year old mama, uh, grandma. And um, so whooping was part of the discipline. So if I, I remember my first beating was, um, I wet the bed, I slept at night, and I, I didn't have a bed. So same thing, I was sleeping on a, this time on a cardboard with a piece of um, cover on it, and I have a little thing to cover myself because if it's in the raining season, get a little bit chilled, yeah. and uh, obviously you need to cover. So I haven't got my siblings to keep us warm because we all slept together. So now I'm on my own with cats all around me. So wet my, my sleeping place. So in the morning, grandma said, oh, it smelled a little bit weary here. And I uh, go, uh, no, it wasn't me, grandma. And then she find out I've done it. So, and she gave me the first beating <laughs> of my life. I mean, I'm laughing because I don't yeah. want people to feel sorry for me because yeah, it yeah. was very sad as a little kid to go through this, but you know, and here I am. So anyway, she, she whooped me seriously. And then um, that taught me a good lesson not to ever tell a lie. But for whatever I did, I was getting serious beating and stuff like that. And then I go to church on a Sunday. I used to have scars all over my body because they would beat me on my head, my back. And they asked me, take your top off. And then they beat your, your flesh so that you really felt the whip going through your, your, your flesh and blood. I can, I can promise so you Why that. did they want to adopt you? So if you're, what was the reason for, it, for adopting you? Because um, we have 15 uh, different tribes in Sierra Leone, and then we have the Creole people who are supposed to be the 16 tribe. And the Creoles were the descendant from slaves. So when the slaves, when they came, a lot of them were educated and they, they were like clerk lawyers and things. So, and, and they have a little bit of a Western life. So when, when their children go, they always like to have a child that they can bring up to help with the house, you know, to help the grandmama, to do things in the house and educate them. So it's just part of their culture. 
you know, adopting children. So um, the grandma was 86, son was 65, and then auntie, um, the auntie was, uh, she was 50 something. So, and so all the children have grown up and they've moved out. So they want somebody to be in the house, especially to help the grandma. And um, so that's why they, they adopted me. And the, the previous boy they adopted, he grew up a little bit older and then he didn't want to live with them anymore. So he walked away. But anyway, at the age of nine years old, I've had enough with this. So uh, one day, in fact, just before I turned nine, I tried an escape, okay. went back to my dad. My dad uh, got angry with me and sent me back. So I came home. They've been looking for me for the whole day. And then I got, I mean, the beating they gave to me, I can still remember it like it happened yesterday. So, and then a year after my uncle died uh, when I was nine. So I went to visit my uncle uh, for the, well, not my uncle, my uncle family for the funeral. And then I never came back after a few days. And then when I turned up, they got so angry with me and they wanted to basically whip me until probably I died, whatever it was. And then I run away and never came back. And so at the age of nine, I was living between my uncle, uh, my late uncle's uh, widow, my cousins. I was living on the, most times I was living on the streets, sleeping in markets, places, and uh, wherever I can sleep to friends on the street. If it's night time, I can sleep wherever the night got me. But um, yeah, so it, it was very tough. And then just as I turned nine as well, as we know, the Civil War started in Sierra Leone, which is classed as one of the most, um, you know, the worst civil war ever, in, I think, in Africa. So it was really bad. Did they, after, after you ran away, they never found you? Uh, they never came back. They never, the Creole people by then, it's different now, but when I was growing up, the Creole really don't mix um, they don't mix with other local tribes and people. So even when my uncle died, they, they went very far away. You would have expected uh, one of them to go and sympathize with the family, but they, they don't do things like this. They really, they create very, they're the minority tribe in Sierra Leone. So they okay. keep to themselves and they never get involved so much with other people. I mean, today is different because the whole world technology has made the whole world different. So. Yeah. You know, children, their children are different. They see the world differently. People travel now and we see the world more. So they, they, they mix and intermarry now with all the different cultures mm -hmm. and other people. So, but they, they, they never went back to, to find me, which was really shocking because um, they knew, I think they knew I wasn't going to come back, even if they yeah. got to find me. And what about your biological parents? Um, my dad, obviously, I wouldn't go back to my dad at that time because... Uh, <laughs> My dad wanted me to be there because those people, basically my dad uh, couldn't afford to send me to school. He wanted me to be a doctor. And so those people were guaranteed. They could they pay school fee for me. And the grandma was, bless her, she used to teach me. That's how I started reading the alphabet because my parents couldn't read and write. So even though she was very disciplined, cruel disciplined, uh, she still helped me. And I... I was so quick to pick up. I started reading from a very early age. I could read, I could, because she was so on to read, to teach me every evening, two letters spelling, three, four, and then spell words, start reading, reading the Bible, and all this kind of stuff. So she did help me a lot. And, um, but I did promise myself that no matter what happened, doesn't matter if I live on the street, I will always do my best to make sure that I finish my education because that's what my dad wanted. Yeah. And he didn't want me to end up like him. 
you know, doing two, three jobs, seven, eight days a week, and salary was less than 10 quid a month. So yeah. he didn't want me to, to end up like that. So, so I did, um, but I wouldn't go back to my, to my dad because he, like he always said, he would send me to hell. <laughs> okay. So yeah. did you, did you, so did you ever see your dad again? Oh, yes. Yes. I, I saw my dad. And funny enough, um, you know, after I run away, my, one of my late sister, uh, she came and picked me up and I was living with her. But at this time in school, obviously this where I don't know if I can talk about tennis now, but my tennis journey is a very funny one. So like I said, yeah. hand tennis was a very popular sport in Sierra Leone. Yeah. So in school, I would play hand tennis. I was good at sprinting. Anything sport, I was good at. In fact, until I was 14, 15, I was the number one junior goalkeeper in the entire Sierra Leone. Good. Yeah, so everybody thought I was going to be the national goalkeeper and this kind of thing. But um, anyway, I'll come to that later. So I was good at sport. I was playing hand tennis and then both bat tennis was popular and all this kind of things. So I was playing that. And then fortunately for me, Unfortunately for my dad, but fortunately for me, my mom and dad, they separated. Okay. So my mom moved to a place called Hill Station. Now, Hill Station, obviously, is up the hill. Uh, they used to have a train line in Sierra Leone, which uh, the train used to stop at that area. So it's called Hill Station. That was a train station, yeah. but it's up the hill. So this was during the British colonial time. So where my mom went to live, she got a new partner. And... Um, so 10 yards away from the house is a tennis court, which I've seen this tennis court since I was a little kid. You know, because my mom used to cut wood in the jungle as well. So when, before I was adopted, my mom used to take me back and forth, back and forth. But also, I think uh, when I, another thing which happened is you have to read my book to understand how all this mystery thing happened to me, yeah. is that when, when I made the first attempt to run away, I think my adopted family at that time, they saw that it was necessary for me to sometime on a weekend to go see my biological parents and my siblings. So when my mom and dad separated, my mom moved to Hill Station. So my adopted family, they used to send me like every two weekends, I'll go on a Friday, Saturday, stay with my mom and then come back okay. on a uh, Saturday evening to go to church on Sunday and then school on Monday. So. Wise, I was making those visits, and the tennis court was only 10 yards away from my mom's little house. Mm. I mean, I call it bungalow, but when you look at it, it's like a place for pigs. Yeah. <laughs> and and, so, so, and so my mom moved in there, and I moved in with my mom after staying with my sister. And as they said, the rest is history. So now I'm on the tennis court, and mm. I was playing hand tennis, board bat tennis. I mean, after school, my school was seven and a half miles from my home. So I walk to school barefoot. Immediately oh, I finish school, yeah. I don't walk. I run seven and a half mile back so that I can go on the tennis court, okay. wash my uniform, go on the tennis court, you know, play tennis. And talking about going to school, you know, we had, a, I used to have one meal a day and I go to school with no lunch, you know, and I walk for seven and a half mile. I have no shoes. And, but I was never late for school. And I was always a good boy in school because in Sierra Leone, they, they still whip mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> in the school mm -hmm. if you misbehave. So it was kind of um, uh, the, the, the discipline for me to be able to, I, I'm not worried about food. I'm not worried about being late for school. I'm always on time. And I take that responsibility from a little child. 
So, and then when I moved to my mom, like I said, playing a lot of um, board bats and hand tennis because I didn't have rackets, I couldn't afford it. So, um, you know, so we play board bats and all this kind of stuff. And one day, a Lebanese guy by the name of Raymond Breeze, his name is Raymond Sion, they call him Raymond Breeze because he was a musician. So, um, so he plays tennis and he came, he, he sang a song which was popular in Sierra Leone called Don't Freeze the Breeze because if you freeze the breeze, everybody will die. So he's a popular song in Sierra Leone. So he came and he met me and one of my friends, I will talk about him in, uh, later. And we were playing best of five, best of 10 point, best of five, both bad tennis. I got four of my toes bleeding because we haven't got shoes. Temperature was um, close to 40 degrees. And the surface we were playing on the, it's a hard court, but it's like sandpaper court. Yeah. So it's very rough at the back. But we couldn't care less about toe bleeding, nails falling off. We don't have time for this. All we want, I don't want to lose. He doesn't want to lose because he actually yeah. taught me a lot about table, um, about um, boat bat tennis and uh, hand tennis. And also he was a good uh, lawn tennis player. So here we were, two set all. And we were playing until 10 or 11, 11 or 12. We were going back and forth. And this guy sat down looking at me and this guy killing each other. Because the way we play board bats, we play it in two ways. We play it in the service box, but most of the time we play it on the court, on a rectangular court with a line in the middle. So you serve like table tennis, but you only got one serve. It doesn't yeah. matter how bad you serve, the other player must play it. If you stop it, you, they lose the point. Yeah. So, so it's a very, very how I would say it's a very tough game to play yeah. because the rules are so are so made up to mentally you've got to cope with it mentally whatever yeah. your opponent did so and then when we finish and this guy looked at me and he said to me I won in five sets and he said to me my god if anyone can put more rackets into your hands you will be a national champion yeah, so anyway I I look I said well I haven't got a shoes tennis player you need shoes and all this kind of thing but again um you know, and I had my first wooden racket, which was a Wilson. After school, I'll go to the wall and I'll hit a lot and hit and hit and yeah. hit, play board bad tennis until, you know, they said the rest is history. Yes, sir. But so are you telling me you didn't complain about who was in your squad and you didn't complain about, about the balls not being brand new and you didn't complain about which coach was on the court? <laughs> no, 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 no. In fact, my, 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 one of the, 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 this is true story. When I was playing hand tennis, the tennis ball we have, if all the felt on the tennis ball has come off. Yeah. So we always have the brown plastic. So I actually, my first initial as a young kid, I used to think that plastic thing was coming from a car. Right. So I never knew that was a tennis ball. This is, this is really honest, true. Yeah, yeah. And then until I actually, when, uh, when I went to the, finally started playing a lot of tennis and I saw that the tennis has half felt uh, and half plastic, yeah. I go, oh, this is my made up story about the car part. It's not actually a tennis ball, it's not yeah, coming yeah. from a car part. It's yeah. actually a proper tennis ball. So we play with balls without the felt because we didn't have much. We, the way we get tennis ball is from the, from the foreign people from England or from America, the German, we have all these ambassadors who come to play. So yeah. when they, the ball go old, they will give it to us or we yeah. cherish those old balls. I mean, to get a ball in Sierra Leone, there is no tennis shop, there is no sports shop that sells tennis. 
People yeah. only get tennis when rich people travel abroad. They come up with box of balls. And so ball was almost like diamond to Ross, you know. Right. And if, if I would have had a diamond, I would have given it to somebody just to get a tin of yeah. uh, new tennis ball. Yeah. That's how value tennis ball was for me in Sierra Leone. No, no, absolutely. It, 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 it's, it's, an incredible, it's an incredible story. Any players listening, <clears throat> just, just remember this. You know, remember, remember these words, you know, remember these stories. It's, it's so easy for us all to kind of live our life and take things for granted and become people that are entitled and expect all of these things. And, and I guess the, the, one of the thoughts I have in my head, Sam, is yeah. when did you realize that this wasn't normal for the world? Because I guess you've been, you've been born into this. You, yeah. I guess don't have televisions, don't have, a, don't have the internet, don't have anything that's given you different images of the world. Was yeah. there a defining moment where you, you realised what a difficult life that you'd had and, and what a different life and upbringing you'd had and that, that actually wasn't the, the normal in the rest of the world? Um. Yeah, you, you do know it because there are rich people who come around to play tennis in fancy cars and okay. wonderful tennis shoes and rackets. And you see their children when their kids come to play. You know, the kids are so well-dressed and we're there barefoot and we don't even have lunch or breakfast in the morning. And yeah. these kids, you see them, they even eat food and they leave it and we will take it and eat the food that they left over because we don't, waste, we don't even have much food. Yeah. So. So we do, you do grow up and see the difference between the rich and the poor. But for us, our life, as poor as it was, was also some of the best. But I think for me, the defining moment came when I was 10 years old. And I had um, one of the kids said, they said, oh, Sam, do you know that um, so-and-so, and so they've gone to play the ITF Junior, on uh, the 14 and on the 16 and on the 18, whatever they were playing. And, and I said, the kids that young, they go play international tennis? And he said, oh, yes, they, they do. He said, and the other thing is, they give them 250 US dollars for allowance. Okay. Well, they give them, pardon me, you said they give them what? $250. They give the kids $250. And I'm thinking, my dad can't even make 10 quid a month. And here I'm hearing, Little 12, 14 years old, I get in 250 US dollars. I tell you, Dan, if nothing else inspired me to play tennis that day, yeah. that was my reason for bossing all my toes on the tennis court. Yeah. And I go, poof, I want that $250 so bad. I don't know what it takes to play tennis, but my God, the wall over there is going to have a trouble with me. Yeah. And so I, I, since that day, and I figured out with 250 US dollars, 150 US dollar could feed my family half a year and I could able to pay school fee for myself and then I'll have some money, you know, to get other things that I need for school or for if I make it to the national team. But also the icing on the cake as well, when he told me, so oh, which when they turn up tomorrow, they all have national track suits. And I go, here we go again, national track suits. I want one of them. And I really want this. There was nothing so driven me to wear my country national tracks with, I was very, very obsessed with um, 
gets in the national tracksuit of Sierra Leone, I mean, you could buy them in the shop, but yeah. I don't want to buy it. I want to earn one myself to say, yes, I got this for my county and I'm going to play for my county. So my why for playing tennis was to feed my family, to pay my school fee, and to wear my national tracksuit. So this is why when I teach mental yeah. training, I said, the first thing I always ask a tennis player, why are you doing this? Yeah. What's your why? Because yeah. if you don't have a why for doing something, you don't see why it's necessary for you to go beyond what you can do to become the best. So if you don't have why, I don't want to train with you. I don't have time for you. You must tell me why you want to do this. So my why was because I wanted to feed my family. Yeah. I wanted to wear the national tracksuit and I wanted to pay school fee. And by the way, I went and I told my dad at a young kid, I told him because I wanted to let my dad know what I'm doing. I said, dad, I'm going to tell you, I found a sport that I love and I'm going to play this sport just to see, to let my dad know where I was. Yeah. And do you know what my dad said to me? He really looked at me. I'm telling you, this is exactly what my dad tell me. He looked at me dead in the eye. He said, son, if I ever see you touch that rich white man's sport, I'm getting my machete and I'm cutting all your fingers. I want you to go to school. I want you to be a doctor and that's about it. So frustrated as I was, but the good thing is I was not living with my dad. I was living with my mom. So my mom was a bit lenient with me, even though every now and then she would throw a slap on a point, but my mom was very lenient. So, and then I, I continued to play. So from the age of uh, 10, I was playing serious tennis. I started competing when I was 12 in the national. And I remember 13 years old, that was in 1995. The, I was trying to, you know, to get into the national team so I can get the $250, I could get the tracksuit, I could get new shoes, and I want to go play so bad for my country. And I progressed really well because I was spending a lot of time in the world, play as much tennis as possible, borrow racket. And by the way, when we don't have string, we go to the town and buy the shark fishing line. Right. The thick ones. Yeah. So that's what we used to restring our racket with yeah. for the shark line, because we didn't have string. There's no one could give mm -hmm. us string. And sometimes we do get string from the rich people when they, like I said, they go to America, come to Europe, mm -hmm. they come with box of strings and then they will give you one. But because of uh, we live in high altitude and it's very dry and sometimes humid, so the string, they broke so quick. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the ball that we play with as well, they don't have much fell. So every time you hit two, three, and this thing just snap. So anyway, and um, so I keep, um, keep doing this, keep fighting. So I played my first national in uh, 1995 or 13, and I didn't have shoes. So the sponsor for the tournament was a company called Sierra Rutile. You can Google them up. They, they mine Rutile in Sierra Leone, the American company. And then there was Evian Water. So uh, a white guy from the, from the Sierra Rutile came to watch the tournament because they were the sponsor. And this guy was amazed that I was playing best of three sets under that heat with barefoot. Yeah. And, you know, and he asked the coach, said, why is he playing without shoes? And the coach, who is a late coach now, he passed away, was a national coach, said, well, he likes to play like that, but he cannot afford to buy shoes, but he loves tennis. So this poor guy must have thought, goodness me, mamma mia. So anyway, following day for the semifinal, I won the quarterfinal. It came, brand new pairs of shoes. And here I was, 
somebody who has never used a shoes in my life before. <laughs> you know, to put it on, looking very smart. I was on court playing against my biggest rival. And all I needed, remember Dan, all I needed is to win the semi-final and go to the final. So the two finalists automatically qualify to go represent Sierra Leone because that's how they select the players. And, and here I was, this is the biggest moment of my life. $250 at stake, national tracksuit. My mom will get enough money for six months for, to provide for the family. My school fee will be secured. And I'm playing against a kid who was one of the best junior players in the country. And he come from a middle class family. His brothers and sisters were here in England. So he doesn't struggle for anything. And anyway, put them shoes on. In the first set, I think after the first four games, I realized that, boy, oh boy, <laughs> shoes is definitely not for me. <laughs> this, definitely, this is not for me. And then I lost the first set, <laughs> six, <laughs> six, three, six, four. And I went to the umpire in the second set. I was so fuming with myself, but because we had grown up to be very obedient and respectful, so I, I tend not to show my emotion too much. Yep. Because the Ross back at home does undiscipline. Yep. So we keep the emotion inside, but inside them, yep. oh, my feet, they felt so heavy. They were slipping <laughs> in between the shoes. And um, I couldn't get a grip to move around very well because running is my, even today at my age, even the, the players I deal with at 16, 17 cannot even outrun me on the court. Yep. So running is my strength. Yep. And here I am, looking like they put super glue under my feet. <laughs> and anyway, so I told the umpire, please, I need to take the shoes off the killing me. And, you know, like I said, he looked at me like some prehistoric throwback kid. Like, you know, what an ungrateful kid. But I took them on. I won the second set, lost in the final set. And, um, yeah, so I laced the shoes together on my neck. Walked four miles home crying. Lost $250. My whole world come crushing at me. This is where I started learning about the psychology of tennis yep. and how to deal with, you know, emotions and pressure. And my, my poor mom, I went home, look at my mom. As soon as I see my mom, I even cry more because all I was fighting for was to get some money to not see my mom every day, go to the jungle and cut wood and make less than 50 cents a day or yep. 50 cents a week, whatever she was making. So... So, yeah, it took me after that. Anyway, I'll let you get into it before I can move on. No, it's, it's, uh, people don't want to listen to me, Sam. You know, you're, this, this story, I'm just sitting back here and, you know, it's, it's, it's an incredible story. How, how old were you at that point to have that big disappointment? I was 13. So you were 13. So then yeah. I guess between the ages of 13 and 18, you you eventually got the two hundred and fifty dollars, and you did, eventually gone on to good things. Not until I was sixteen. So until, I okay. I tried every year I'm playing. I keep losing in the quarterfinal. I'm pretty much to the same kid, okay. you know. And um, and like I said, he was good. He was really. In fact, he made me. It's like when you look at Federer and Rafa and Novak and Murray, how they push each other. Yeah. and make each other become better because they always run into each other in the final one of those four. So, um, so it was the same with this kid. We, have, uh, we were like uh, 24 of us that were equally really good in the whole country at that level because Sierra Leone is, is only, that, at that time it was only nearly 6 million people. Now it's over 7 million. But, you know, 
like I said, only two players they could take from each category because the country hasn't got money and ITF could only help some, uh, some only little amount of players, you know, to go compete. So anyway, uh, another thing which happened, of course, which I'm going to talk about in Sierra Leone before I come back to the tennis, the civil war in Sierra Leone started when I was nine years old. So I could remember the war started in Liberia by former leader Charles Taylor, who is having life in prison now in the northeast of uh, England or northwest, somewhere northeast. And um, so the civil war started and the guy who helped him in the war decided he was a Sierra Leonean soldier who went and rebelled against Sierra Leone, joined Charles Taylor. Yeah, he died uh, many years ago by the name of Fode Sanko. So all this is in my book. And Fode Sanko helped Chastelo. So Chastelo became the president of Liberia after escaping prison in America, formed his rebel group, go to Liberia, become the president. So he told Fode Sanko, okay, I'm president of Liberia. I can help you to go be president of Sierra Leone. So he formed the RUF group, which is the Revolutionary United Front Group. Yeah. And um, so they took up arms. They said they were fighting for poverty because Sierra Leone, by the way, has a lot of diamond, gold, bauxite, iron hot, timber, uh, cocoa, coffee, you name it, we have everything. Yeah. But again, Sierra Leone was ranked as the second poorest nation on the planet. So this is for, so when he came, everybody, okay, well, he do have some point, but then they start killing people, amputating young girls and boys, and then recruit a lot of child soldiers. So child soldiers become very rampant. I think Sierra Leone have some of the most and wildest child soldiers from the age of four really? and 18 years old. They have these kids in the rebel forces. So here I was as a very muscular, strong kid. And my parents and everybody else was fear that I'm going to end up becoming the army or, you know, really? as a child soldier. But anyway, over 120,000 people lost their life. The war lasted for 11 years. And I could remember one of the saddest stories that happened to me was on Valentine's Day, which was the 14th of February. Actually, that was in 1998. That was uh, four days after I turned 16. So I had my best friend by the name of Alimami. So Alimami was the guy I was playing board battle with that we're killing each other, you know, yes. this uh, uh, best of five set. And so Alimami has been like my brother, like the angel. It's like God sent him to come and guide me so that I could, I could able to play tennis, I could be strong, and he would train with me. He was very good in sport. We went to the same, you know, Catholic secondary school, St. Edward's secondary school. So anyway, and he, this day on a Valentine's Day, I was really sleeping and the military attack has happened. So the West African nations bring a foreign troop called ECOMOC, Economic Community of West Africa Monitoring Group. So the ECOMOG is like the UN. Okay. So they came to kick the, we have a military government and the rebel. So ECOMOG came to kick both the military and the rebel out. Well, now the whole country become a war-torn zone. So this Valentine's Day, Alimami came in and tapped me on the shoulder. I was sleeping. He goes, Sam, you're sleeping like a dead person. We need to leave. And once I woke up, all I could hear was da -da -da -da, there's missile from one whistling from one side to another, and there was explosion, and we lived not too far from the military barracks. So anyway, I got up, put on my clothes, we came outside of the tennis court, and from where we, we stay, and we're looking and trying to figure out what to do, where to go. So I stand like here, 
And um, Alemami was behind me, so we looked like a totem pole because he was taller. And all of a sudden, the militaries were going out, missile is passing, and we're there docking and standing and looking like we're in serious trouble here. So another friend of ours came and called my name. He said, Sam, look what's happening over there. So there was a bomb explosion because the military jets trying to bomb the military barracks and the FM station, and they keep missing and dropping the bomb in the wrong place. So there was a smoke and explosion. So I took a few steps, and as soon as I moved, in less than 15 seconds, all I had was a rapid AK-47 behind me. I just said, but I could tell this has hit somebody because you know the war has been going on you know, for over uh, five years, five, no, for seven years by then. You know, so we could, I could recognize AK-47, LNG, the HMG, RPG, right. whatever millimeter, it's like I was basically in the army, I could tell whatever is coming, whatever they're shooting. So yeah. I turn around, Alimami has been shot multiple times on the chest from a close range by a rebel. So, you know, so I rushed to him screaming and then look at my best friend, you know, somebody who have, um, you know, really helped me all over my life has been there for me in school, you know, playing tennis, um, helping me to become a better person. And here I was, and I'm looking at this guy. All I could hear was him just trying to catch his breath to get back, almost like he's trying to say something to me. And then when I turn him around, his whole back, I don't know if, if anyone has ever seen a bullet, when he goes here, it's a small hole, but when he comes, it's open. So his back completely open, you know, and I could see through him and the floor. When you see a human blood come out that fresh, and I'm, I'm describing this so people can understand what it was. Oh, absolutely. And here I was looking at my best friend. It's like you're crying, but you're not crying. It's like, is this real or am I dreaming? Yeah. And then um, I had him. The first time in my life, I saw somebody live left. Because I'm standing there and I look at him, did, and that was it. It was, it was gone. And um, I was in tears crying. And then the military truck came in. And my mom at this time has run from where she was, running. And she stood just about a few yards away from me looking at Alimami, who my mom take like her own son, and looking at me standing there, and my mom uh, couldn't say a word. She just looked at me in my eyes, but I could tell what my mom was thinking, that I'm not gonna let you die like this. And that was the day I realized that, you know, I'm not invincible, yeah. and I promised myself, I would never see, I don't wanna ever see this grief on my mom, because I've never seen my mom look at me like this. Yeah. You know, and then she held my hand and they picked his body away. And, and that was the last time on Valentine's Day. And that's what I'll never forget in 98. Yeah. So, Just. so yeah, so that was one of the toughest time, I think, in the army to see your, your yeah. who I consider my hero, yeah. to see him end like that as a very young guy. He was only a year and a bit older than me, so he was under 18 as well. And he was the under yeah. 18 champion, you know, yeah. so... So it was very, very sad. Um, but he will be so, he'll be so proud of you, you know, and yeah, to sit for yeah. what, you know, for what you've, you've gone on and achieved the way that you're sitting in front of me. And I know you, you've done lots of talks and spoken and told the story that needs to be told. 
<clears throat> and how you're using that in in such a positive way it's it's absolutely heartbreaking and i'm i'm completely in i'm into you know i'm in this story i'm i'm feeling i'm feeling it with you but yeah. it's he he will be incredibly proud of what you're doing and what you've achieved yeah yeah definitely so and then again uh, so um in october of 1998 um after so many disappointments then i had the opportunity to play uh, we couldn't play national that year because of the war has been disrupting. So the, the national is always in the summer, which it goes from November to April. So, and then an opportunity came in for us to play the ITF Junior in Ghana, Togo, and Nigeria. So they wanted to get the under 18 team because I couldn't play under 16 anymore. I was over 16. And so in October, the national coach, who have always been a friend and a help to me. He wanted me to be in the national team. And he said, Sam, look, there's an opportunity here for you to play if you qualify. I know you've always wanted to be part of the team, but obviously the protocol is you have to qualify, you know, um, because we don't play many tournaments. So I'm going to organize a round robin. So the round robin, it was um, uh, 16 of us play a normal. Uh, first one uh, tournament and then the top eight they put us in two different blocks so it's four on this group four on that group so they want two players you know one from each group to qualify so the first stage 16 people drop out and um, eight people drop out so it's left eight and those eight of us were put into two blocks of four yeah. so we play around robin so again one of the guy who is his name Sapolum and um, he hit with Dimitrov and all these players in America. And so he has qualified already. So it was between me and my biggest rival, who was Gabriel, Gabriel Amara. I wrote a lot about him in the book. And anyway, so, um, so we were to play our final match. So my third final match. So he has won um, his first two, I've won mine. So it's just between me and him. You know, so whoever wins that would qualify as the second uh, player. So, but for me going to that match, I approached the match to say, well, this match is not just about the tracksuit anymore. It's not about the $250. This for my best friend, Alimami. So I was determined. So my why for playing that final, I said, this is for my friend. Either my toes, I have to lose all my toes today, or I have to lose my arms or something, but whatever happened, I am gonna make sure I'm in this team just for him. So that really gives me the drive because of course we get nervous. I remember when I walk on court, I was so nervous, not because I was scared of the player because I don't wanna go through this disappointment again yeah. of losing another chance because I was getting a little bit too old to go play yeah. in the juniors. Yeah. And um, so anyway, so we went and in three sets, you know, I end up winning. And the emotions, I tell you, Dan, I describe it in my book, said so that year, Pete Sampras uh, won his match against, I can't remember, was this Goran Evanishevic he beat, or who yeah. he beat in the final, it was a five set. And, and I said, that little qualifying in Sierra Leone was no Wimbledon, but for me, that's how I felt. Absolutely. I felt that finally, I'm going to get the money and the tracksuits and my mom, you know, was crying so badly. And the, the previous time when I lost, I walked home, I was crying with so much frustration. But this time, my emotion was different. You know, I was crying because of Alimami, who has been killed. I was, because he would have been so yeah. proud 
you know, to see me make it into the yeah, national absolutely. team. And so, yeah, so I got the $250, uh, $150 for my mom for food. I paid my school fee, $50 was there. And the good part about it is I'll finish with this one. The club, my club, they go around, they collect some money for me from the rich people. So I have extra uh, US dollars. So the night before we left, we left on the 20th of December, 1998, to go to, um, to Ghana to play. So on the 19th, I went to my dad and I have $50 notes. And I remember to, to go tell my dad I'm traveling the following day, you know, to Ghana to play for Sierra Leone. I was there, I picked my tracksuit up from the stadium from the national coach and um, I got my allowances way before. So I gave my dad $50 in his palm. So he looked at it and go, what is this? I said, oh, that's a 50 US dollar. He said, how, what, how can I use this? I said, oh, dad, if you go to town, you know those guys who stand there and they change the money, you give them, this is what they give you in my currency. My dad grabbed it and go, oh, wow. He said, where did you get it? I said, well, you know that rich white man sport you asked me not to play. So that has given me a lot of money. So just, <laughs> this is so sweet. I still feel the chill mm -hmm. today when I tell this story mm -hmm. because the look on my dad's face is, was priceless. Mm -hmm. he, thought, he thought I was out of my yeah. head. I was speaking Absolutely. another language. So I said that, so this is part of the rich white man sport. And I'm very certain you're not going to cut my fingers now. <laughs> So my dad, for the first time, for the first time as a 16 year, in 16 years, my dad gave me a hug and he thanked me so much. He said, I am very proud of you. And oh, wow. I tell you what, that really lifts my spirit. And I give yeah. my dad a hug and I tell him, I'll play tennis for him and I'll make sure he never struggle again. So it was a blessing. My dad prayed for me. It was a blessing. Yeah. And, you know, so it's, it's, it, it, was a, it was very good to see my dad so happy. Oh, absolutely it's 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 incredible it's incredible so what there's so many things going through my head sam and i mean first and foremost is thank you you know for share for sharing yeah. your story and there's still more to go i want to move into you know what you've then gone on to do and you know you've used this as such an amazing platform but yeah. as somebody and, and i know we both do we we work with young people but we quite often are working with young people who have privileged backgrounds. Yeah. So now it's very clear to see the passion, the the purpose, the reason, the the strength that you've taken from from your story. Now I can't put all of my players through what you've gone through for yeah. for 16 years to then yeah. bring them out the other end and say, you know, so how do we how do we create this this type of person and this type of intense purpose and, and reason in players and, and humility and like and pure the big thing that comes through from for me is this a hundred percent pure ownership. You took ownership of your life age eight. Yeah. Age eight. You know, yeah. you absolutely like and the strength of mind that you get from taking that ownership and re that responsibility is just completely incredible. So, so how, how do we get that across to, to, to players that are coming from privileged backgrounds? 
it's uh, it's a very it's very difficult because um, you have to experience certain things to understand certain things. But there's my one of my philosophies: you don't have to be hit by a car to know that a car can hurt, a car accident yes. will hurt. So, but it's also to get that message. I think the big picture for me is uh, raising children to to have that competitive and self determination has to start from home, because their first four years they spend at home with their parents. Like for example, I got twin daughters. And um, my kids are so disciplined because they're so privileged, you know, million times compared to me, where I come from. They've never struggled. They've never slept hungry. In fact, we gave them everything. But one of, my, one of the things I did was, since from a young age, from as soon as they go dada, they start walking, I start teaching them right. I start teaching my kids how to make their bed when they were three years old. Yep. I teach them they have to do their bed. I teach them they have to help their mommy. And then when they were six years old, I'll put them on the chair. When we eat, I leave my two daughters to wash the plates. Yeah. We don't wash the plate. They have to do it. I teach them. I teach them if you drop this, it breaks. If you break it, you and daddy are going to be doing lots of push-up because that's the punishment. Yeah. And so today, my kids, they, they grow up. One of my daughters, she is one of the best sprinters in the UK, in an age group in the under 15. And she worked harder, just like... She, I mean, everybody said this girl is just a duplicate of you. She knows what she wants. She wants to go to the, to the Olympic. She is very stubborn when it comes to training. Sometimes I have to beg her, for the love of God, can you just please take a time out? Yep. He talk athletic, just like me. But this is all from the upbringing because when the kids are privileged, you can't blame them because they don't see what they don't see what I've seen. Yep. They don't become. But the only way to able to tell them is as a coach and as a dad and as a, 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 a motivational speaker, the first thing I did is I have a philosophy that and I'm going to tell you. Yeah. So my philosophy is hard and smart work, determination, passion, desire, and the will to endure pain with no excuses. Yeah. This is my philosophy. Every player that I work with, I make sure that they write it on their notebook. If they don't yeah. have one, I provide them a notebook. So I want you to write my philosophy there. So when I demanded you to work hard, I don't want you to have a little pain on your finger and you start telling me my finger is paining me. No, I've seen people in Sierra Leone without arms going for the day and selling things and making money. I've seen people who wake up, they don't have a meal. So for me, it's easier to relate. So all the players that I work with, they don't have problems. And I can tell you, Dan, I can tell them, say, look, if I can play tennis with bare hands, and I can play tennis with board bat with no shoes. And I play in the ITF, I play in the Futures, I play in the All-African game. I was part of, uh, when we uh, formed the Davis Cup team, even though we didn't have the sponsor, I was part of the Davis Cup team. And also, I've trained with a lot of uh, ATP players. I've hit with uh, Andrew Robler, Damien Zumo, uh, one Michael Gamble. And I've hit with uh, Kaya Kanepi, I hit with last year. I've been friends with Marion Bartoli, Virginia with Barry Cohen. Peter Mac late Peter McNamara was my good friend yeah. and uh, Peter Fleming from the yeah. US. You know, all these guys and I've met with them, I've trained with them, you know, and, and I've done exhibition match on the center court in Liverpool. I've played every league, I've won everything in England to win. I've done everything and now I've traveled to 96 countries around the world teaching tennis. If I can come from the slum of Chevalier and do it, do you know what these children who have the, the, they have the money, the parents, they didn't have a dad who cut their finger for playing tennis, yeah. you know, 
and they got the coaches, the facilities and everything. Can you imagine what they can do? So for me, to get the balance is to teach them the reality, get somebody like myself and other people who can come and tell them this kind of thing. I went to the Manchester United um, Academy to speak with Nicky Boss and all the head coach, uh, Pogba was there and all these guys. And I spoke. The room was silent for five minutes. Nobody could answer any question I was asking them because Nicky Boss told me that these kids are complaining that the academy is tough. Yeah. I showed them a little video and I asked them, how many of you guys here want to go with me to Africa and live like this for one year? They all look at each other like, <laughs> no. You know, so, and, and the, the, the response I got from Nick, it said, Sam, these kids, some of them, they played in the Manchester United first team. Your story is so inspiring. I cannot believe the response we're getting from them and said, you need to keep bringing Sam here because you need to hear somebody like him Absolutely. to be able to, to inspire. So it's very difficult to get the balance because life is not about being perfect. Life is not about being just get everything life is about balance yeah you know the poor people don't have the money the rich people don't have the willingness so this so but if you have somebody who's rich and willing then you got the balance if you have somebody who's poor and then somebody's helping them financially then you have the balance so life is about balance it's not about yeah. being perfect it's about having a balance in relationship in tennis in whatever sports you do yeah. and for me this is what i teach when i say i do mental training people think i'm there uh, dealing with people no i'm there to teach people about life about yeah. setting a goal about fighting so one more before i finish with your question i've wrote a new book called the world of tennis madness you will love this because yeah. i'm telling it all yeah, yeah. <laughs> so one of my my own statistic this is coming from me i when i do talk i talk in academies in the u.s wherever i go i speak i ask them i, I even ask coaches if ten thousand kids at a very good level, let's say they're all in this level, maybe one or two here. They are playing the ITF under 18. They're all good, 10,000 of them. Yep. How many will make it to the top 100? Probably. Yeah, it's very low. Probably 50 out of 10,000, if that. Because imagine how many players in China, in America, in Europe, if in that. Africa, you know. But how many players did they talk about? When you go to Wimbledon, only one player go out as a champion. Yeah. So that's how tiny it is. So if you want to make it part of that 100, I'm telling you, you better ready to go to hell and back just yeah. to get there. Absolutely. Because other than that, forget it. So for me, these are the things I teach the kids to have this yeah. awareness because everybody thinks Absolutely. they're going to be the best. You know, yeah, so this, yeah. No, Sam, I'm completely with you. It's actually with the, and we'll, we will get on to this in a minute as well. That that's connected us the between the white lines. Yeah. You know, what what I'm going to be talking about is is tennis being a vehicle, not a destination. And yeah. and you are the most amazing example of that. But there's 87. The ITF have <clears throat> brought out in a recent study, 87 million people globally play tennis at least a couple of times a week yeah and that's a lot of people and 0.0000057 percent make yeah. make money through yeah. through playing tennis yeah. so how and and we we've gone through this at the academy last week and i have a couple of points on this one 
how can you expect to be successful if you're just normal? You know, you have to be exceptional, you know, you yeah. in, in everything that you do. But yeah. secondly, I think as tennis coaches, and this is my this is my thing, if we go around the world with tennis coaching, tennis yeah. coaching's aimed at just trying to trying to be one of produce players that are this zero point zero 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 five seven five. Whereas yeah. what are we doing? in order to actually look after the other 99.9999425. And, yeah. and then the third point that I have on that, if you are able to actually understand this amazing journey and this amazing privilege that we have in our sport to be yeah. doing it and, and absolutely fighting for everything that we possibly can get, but we understand that those skills are leading into many other things, like yeah. yourself, tennis has been your vehicle to bring you from Sierra Leone to now be speaking in front of people, TED Talks and doing all these amazing things. It actually yeah. also helps us, I believe, perform in the here and now because yeah. we have a bit of a better perspective on, yeah. on where tennis fits into it. And, and, yeah. and, I, and I just don't see enough of this education happening around the world. It's just yeah. four, forehands, backhands, volleys, slice. <laughs> This is these are the real messages. These this yeah. is the real education, you know. And I think yeah. if we can have more people like yourself bringing this to life, then yeah. then I believe the world will be a better place. But also in our own industry, tennis will certainly be in a better place. Yes, uh, definitely it would be. And and I think you're absolutely right. And uh, the statistics just show, like I said, the, the new book I'm writing called um, uh, "The World of Tennis Madness." People are going to look at that and go, "Wow." Yeah. You know, so, and the, the thing is, um, one of the, the things that we as coaches, we do, and I remember speaking to Geoffrey Porter, I did an interview with him, and I said, Geoffrey, I like to know what people's philosophy is, and what is your why, what's your philosophy, why are you doing this, what wake you up yeah. in the morning? Yeah. You know, when, uh, when I was writing my book, I have a um, full-time job in Spain. I was working eight hours a day. I have my two kids to look after. And I go to the gym. I never miss the gym. And I wrote my book in six weeks. Within six weeks, I have less than 24 hours sleep. Yeah. People said to me, that's not normal. How can you not sleep? I said, no, I will sleep when necessary. I always make a joke. When I die, I sleep forever. Yeah. But if you don't have that self-determination, it's not going to happen. But also talking about the percentage of players who make it. So one of the things I teach people is, Look at the opportunities that tennis can offer you. Yeah. Tennis has ranked everywhere on the planet as the number one spot for fitness that you can play when you're 80, 90 years old. You can yeah. burn more calories. You can uh, have fun. You can forget about the whole world. You can meet new people. You can do so much. So look at the benefit. The kids today who play competitively, if they don't become professionals, they can go to college tennis. They can have free education. They can become coach. If they don't become coach, there's mental, uh, mental illness, which is very popular now around the planet because yeah. people are getting so frustrated with life. But when you take a racket, you go into a court and you hit with people, you refresh your mind, you forget about your problem, you, you get healthier, you know, that can change your motive. And you, you're always around positive people. So that's one of my messages. I've never been to a tennis court where I see people taking guns, shooting each other. But yeah. every day on the news, a child has been shot in Manchester Star, yeah. in Liverpool, in London, you know, in, in the States, everywhere. But on the tennis courts, you don't hear the statistics. So 
what we should be teaching people is tennis is not just as a professional sport. It's a lifestyle. You know, it's a thing that can make you have new friends. Some of my best friends today are not people who I grew up with in Sierra Leone. Some of my best friends are people who actually I met in the tennis circuit, on the tennis court. Yeah. You know, so, so tennis have so much benefits. And a quick story before I, I finish this because of time. I was in uh, Austria many years ago when my kids were little because both of them, they play tennis, even though one of them sprint. We went to this little village and every day I take my kids to play tennis, but nobody turns up. And then one Friday, we went into the club and there was food, there was drink, but nobody there. So I said to my kids, I was joking, maybe they think we're refugees from Africa. They've put some food for us. <laughs> so anyway, who were they playing? And then later on, about nearly 70 people turn up old people, young people, they were all in a bike. And uh, the, one of the guys came over and said, you and your kids are so good, you play good tennis. I said, like, how do you know that? Say, we've been seeing you, been watching you. So everybody watch me in your house, <laughs> you know. So anyway, cut long story short, 70 people, I end up knowing all these people. By the time you know it's done, I've been on the court with pretty much everyone who played tennis. They around with my kids we having drink i was having food everything and they say oh come back all the time i said no we're leaving tomorrow <laughs> we, yeah. we're traveling but people didn't care whether we were black they didn't care whether we were from where we were just born together in less than an hour just because of a piece of tennis ball and a racket absolutely that's the beauty of tennis so it's not just about the professional thing it's about what you learn how that can take you and become a better person and you can go anywhere on the planet and you can play tennis and you can have fun you can be healthy you can uh, get your stress released and you can make new friends as well absolutely sam incredible yeah. if you had one piece of advice so i have a tennis academy in spain so you've yeah. got one piece of advice for the soto tennis academy players that are coming yeah. in age 9 10 11 12 what would it be my advice would be is once they enter into your tennis academy is make sure that they're there to learn and enjoy every moment they're there. Yeah. And, um, and the thing is, I'm making this a little bit uh, easier for them because when you, when you be a good student, I remember when Fedor was asked, he said, um, do you want to remember as the greatest player? I said, no, somebody might come and beat my record. I want to be remembered as the greatest student. When you're a very good student, and you enjoy what you do, you always progress in life. So once they come to the academy, they listen, they, they listen to you, to all the other coaches that work for you, and then they enjoy the environment. It doesn't matter how much hard it is, how much tough it is, they enjoy it and be a good student, they will become whatever they want to become, and they will find that they will learn more from you and all the other coaches uh, than they would if they don't listen to you or enjoy what they're doing. Very, very good advice. Very good, Sam. My last question before yeah. we have a very quick, quick fire. Yeah. What's next for you? What can we expect from you over the next 10 years? In the next 10 years? Oh, you're the first one to ask me about 10 years. Usually they ask me about 12 months, but I, I have a plan to, first of all, to uh, being able to run a, a business, get my own place in Sierra Leone where I can do a little tennis academy there so that I can give a helping hand to my community. Amazing. Because there the children do want to play tennis. They want to do sport because I work on all the national television and I'm promoting tennis all the time. 
a lot of the kids when I'm walking there, they say, I want to be like you, Mr. Sam. Mm-hmm. I want to be like you. I want to play tennis. I want to travel the world. So that inspires me. And also, I'm, uh, I'm trying to finish four other books. So in the next coming years, I've wrote, I've already finished three other books, like I said, during the lockdown, yeah. but I've got a few more books to write. And I want to be one of the best motivational speakers in the world, so where I can go and speak. And also to use my story to inspire many children. And I can't wait one day I'll come to your academy and talk and Absolutely. do a walk in some, some military training with your players. Yeah. So, so to put them through their pace and yeah. then also share my story with them. So I want to be, a, of course, a good father to my twin daughters. And I also want to be able to create something in Sierra Leone where, like, between the white line, we all can come together and go to Africa and help children. And I want to be able to motivate as many people as possible because on this planet, we're here as strangers. One minute we're here, the next minute we're gone. So by the time I'm gone, I want to make sure that I help as many people as possible. Sam, you're amazing. It's been, yeah. a, it's been an unbelievable conversation. It's been to hear your story, to hear how, like I said, I've said it a couple of times, but to see how you've turned that around, you've used it as this platform. I think yeah. we're, very, we're very fortunate to be hearing this story on the podcast. I hope all the listeners have, have loved that and I hope you're making notes and I hope yeah. you're taking one or two key things. You know, we can all use this inspiration to make a choice to to do something a little bit different, to think a little bit different, to change our mindset. Uh, but you don't get away lightly because we've got to finish off with the quick fire. I yeah. don't have many, but I've got a couple okay. of questions for you. Yeah. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? Davis Cup. Injury timeout for players or not? Should it be allowed? Um, oh, I'll go injury time. Coaching or competing? Well, I enjoy the competitive side, but now I love coaching. Coaching. What does tennis mean to you? Uh, tennis means everything to me uh, because that's why I'm here. Uh, tennis, if let's say I haven't got oxygen in my body, tennis will give me oxygen. So tennis is like my lifeline. Amazing. And one rule change that you would have in tennis? Oh, what rule would I change? <laughs> That's a lot. Um, oh, I cannot think of my head what rule to change in tennis. Well, the only thing I've seen in the ITF junior, which I would like to change, maybe I'll go to the junior, is that no let tennis. Very good. I don't like it because my player fall victim of that rule, even on the match point. <laughs> it happens. We accept it. That's our sport. It, it's uh, it's yeah. not easy. Sam, you're you're an absolute star. Thank you so much for your time, and yeah. I, and I look forward to us getting together at some point. Like I say, in Spain, Definitely. if there's anything we can ever do to help to, with things in Sierra Leone as well, you know, we we talked about this off camera. You know, we've yeah. got we've got a project going in Kenya right now that we're really yeah. excited to be a part of. And the more that the tennis community can come together, the better. So we'd love yeah. to we'd love to set that up as well. Okay, thank you so much uh, for this, Dan. And um, you know, I've enjoyed it, and I hope your listeners will enjoy it and they will learn 
you know, some lesson that in this life you need to choose what you want to do, be grateful, be thankful, be respectful, be appreciative, and uh, know what you want and go after it, no matter how many times people lock their doors, you know, no matter how many times people say no, which no means next opportunity, have some hope. Hope means holding on to positive energy. That's what hope stands for. So enjoy your time, enjoy tennis because it's a beautiful sport and together let's respect people no matter their race, gender, no matter their nationality, culture, whatever. If we can love each other, this planet belongs to us and we all can enjoy and be wonderful, amazing people. So thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. A massive thank you to Sam Jalow for coming on to the podcast. Sam, you're an inspiration, my man. It's, a, it's an incredible story and, and something that all of us, if we just stop and think about the, the daily things that we complain about, the excuses, the justifications that we make for why maybe we're not able to become tennis players or why we're acting in certain ways. Yeah. Gratitude is, is, is vitally important for all of us in life. And, and just to think of Sam's stories and the many, many, many other people, and that's just in Sierra Leone. You know, and there's many countries like that in the world. And it's, it's something that I, we can't take for granted what we have. And then I would even say, go a step further. What can we do to, to help these, these countries? You know, and that's certainly something at Soto Tennis. Where we're working towards getting in a position where we can really start giving back to, to people less privileged than us. And, and I think it's vital that we do that globally, not just in tennis, but in life itself. So thank you, Sam, for bringing that message through loud and clear. I'd also like to mention just on this platform, my, myself and Sam and 42 other guests from Emilio Sanchez, who's also going to be on the podcast next week. To, to many amazing guests are going to be talking on the, the, the Between the White the Between the White Line Summit, sorry, um, on September the 24th to September the 26th. It's a fantastic event where lots of fantastic people around the tennis world, you know, entrepreneurs, people in the private sector of tennis are coming together to form one collective voice. Uh, not talking about forehand technique or backhand technique or tactics, but talking about real things that can make a real change to our sport. Um, if you want more details on that on Soto Tennis social media, and we'll also put the link into the podcast notes for this podcast, you can sign up. We're giving opportunities for discounts, all of those different things to, to make sure that you've got these amazing speakers right at your fingertips. So I urge you all to educate yourself through that and get involved, get involved and let us know what you think as always about the podcasts. But until the next time, I'm Dan Kiernan. My co-host is John McGann. We are Control the Controllables.